movie, A Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet, produced and directed by our guest, Mark Kitchell, tells the story of environmental activism, people trying to save the planet, their homes, their future. In a chronicle of five decades of grassroots and global environmental movements, Kitchell explores how we arrived at the present worldwide crisis. While exploring broader ideas and deeper meanings, A Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet, brings together eras in the past 50 years from conservation to climate change. The Mendocino Film Festival presents the world premiere of A Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet, November 9, 10, and 11 in Fort Bragg, Mendocino, and Point Arena. We'll provide details in this program, and you may learn more at mendocinofilmfestival.org and afearscreenfire.com. Mark Kitchell and I visited by phone from his office in San Francisco, California, on October 26, 2012. Mark Kitchell, welcome to Radio Curious. Thanks so much for having me, Barry. Would you begin by telling us what you set out to do when you decided to make the film A Fierce Green Fire? Well, we were out to make the first big picture exploration or history of the environmental movement. We realized that, you know, there had been films about this, that, and the other issue, but not a film that... A, looked at the movement, activism more than issues, and B, nothing of the scope that was uh, like a grand synthesis. And I, I thought, wow, that's a great art. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> and um, we set out to make a six-part history. You know, we wanted to get everything in. And um, one of my advisors, E.O. Wilson, the great biologist, um, said, Mark, you know, nobody's going to watch it or nobody's going to fund it. And if they do, nobody's going to watch that much. And he really urged me to focus it. And he said, pick five of the most dramatic and important people and events and focus on them. And so right there in the Bug Museum, the Entomology Museum at Harvard, we sort of said, well, it would have to be Brower and the Sierra Club and Halting the Dams in the Grand Canyon. And it has to be Lois Gibbs and Love Canal fighting... 20,000 tons of toxic waste. And it has to be Chico Mendez and the rubber tappers saving the Amazon. And you can't finish with anything other than climate change. And that left me with sort of one to pick for myself. And I picked Greenpeace and the whale and seal campaigns. I wanted to have the cowboys, the people who made it fun and passionate to be an environmentalist. So um, that. That was the five main stories, and we built the film around that. When did you begin? Uh, 2001. Uh, you know, you talk about an aha moment. We were, my wife and I were riding up from L.A. Uh, to San Francisco, and she said, I know 
why don't you do a history of the environmental movement? There's all these cool things, and there's Yosemite, and there's this, and there's Grand Canyon, and and we started riffing on all the things that we could put in the history of the environmental movement. Uh, that was 11 years ago. When I talk to people who have written a book, there's often a direct comment uh, or a pretty clear innuendo that it's revised three or four times from what they imagined it to be. Uh, did you have a similar experience with the Fear Screen Fire? Oh, surely. I mean, the big one was going from a six-part series down to what was supposed to be an hour standalone piece uh, or a pilot or something like that. I, I, I set out to make a, a two-hour film, uh, and uh, you know I felt comfortable with that. I'd made Berkeley in the 60s, which is a two-hour standalone film, and I just felt like that was the right amount. I, I didn't believe that we could get such a big, complicated sprawling movement like the environmental movement into such a small package and worked on it and worked on it and I was amazed that we were able to bring it down and bring it down and you know first we were able to bring the five acts down to about 35 minutes apiece and we kept on going and we brought it down to 22 and then 20 and now finally they're about 18 minutes apiece and it's just amazing that we got as much in and managed to cut it down as much as we did. Um, I mean, I could tell you more that had to do with content and revisions, but that's the basic. You know, the thing I was worried about the most, Barry, was was it all going to go together? Was it going to hang together? Was it going to come together into something coherent? I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the themes from the five different parts uh, some of the details that perhaps when you were uh, in the Amazon talking with uh, Chico Mendez about the deforestation and the effect it has on the Amazon's continuing ability to generate its own rainfall. Um, the Amazon generates its own rainfall. And when you cut down the forest, even in places, if you create dry patches, open patches where there's no forest, the forest dries out. Um, and they, they say that rain transpires, meaning it falls and is evaporated, and it falls again and it's evaporated again and so on. Rain falls 14 times and is re-evaporated and then falls again uh, by the time it makes it from the Atlantic Ocean to the Andes on the western Amazon. In terms of themes, you know, we were clearly trying to do an arc where the thing grows bigger and bigger and bigger and the issues get bigger and bigger and bigger. And in a way, you can say it started out with saving wild things and places. And, you know, it was conservation of land and it was birds and seals and wildlife. And then it grew, as Lois Gibbs put it so well, you know, that their movement was about people. And if the birds are dying and the fish are dying, then people are dying. I think it expanded to include humans and and the built environment, the cities and the factories and the industrial infrastructure. And then in Greenpeace, Rex Weiler talks about how saving the whales took off so much and struck such a chord 
because they were fighting for all the other beings that had been dislocated and disrupted and destroyed by the industrial civilization of mankind. So there's a sense where it's growing first to people and then it's growing beyond people to all of creation. And then by the time you get to Act 4 of the film, we're talking about global-scale resource issues and crises, and the Amazon is merely the biggest of them. There's forestry issues and crises all over the world. There's water, there's soil, there's desertification, there's emptying oceans, and the biggest of them all, in a way, is the biodiversity crisis and, you know, the sixth great extinction. And so... By the time we get to Act 4, we're moving to global-scale crises, and then the biggest of them all is is climate. So there's a growth in the scale and kind of of environmental issues. I like to think that the environmental movement got promoted to the level of its incompetence. (laughs) The issues kept getting bigger and bigger. Oh, you can solve this. Okay, we'll give you more. And then uh, until finally... Bill McKibben in the film says he thinks that climate change is perhaps too big an issue for the environmental movement to take on. Yeah. And, of course, he's the one taking it on better than anybody else with 350.org. But it is, in a way, this has gotten too big for the environmental movement. When Bill McKibben says um, that climate change is too big to take on, what is his rationale? It's not in the film, but he goes on to talk about how the environmental movement was scaled to save the Grand Canyon or maybe to take on an oil company, although it's not very good at that. It's not scaled to uh, take on global issues that are, you know, so incredibly difficult. I mean, climate change is the impossible issue. It's impossible to deal with. It's also impossible to ignore and that's what's going to save us in the end, is that we have to face it. But it's just such an impossible issue. The environmental movement, in a way, was able to deal with the ozone hole over the Antarctic and able to deal with acid rain and, you know, things like that. But now it's gotten to where it's the major systems of the planet, the energy system, the climate system, so on. Well, is it the environmental movement uh, that's dealing with it, or is it the forces of nature which uh, will certainly um, endure and succeed over uh, the mammals and the reptiles uh, and the flora? Well, we talk about how over the course of 50 years, the environmental movement has gone from saving wild places and things to saving human society. And we don't talk about saving the planet. We talk about saving human society and that those really are the stakes now. Uh, We all know that the planet will survive. Stuart Brand talks about Gaia and how Gaia will deal with climate change by going to 5 degrees Celsius hotter, which is fine for Gaia, but kind of disastrous for a civilization going on to 7 billion people Lovelock estimates that the planet has a carrying capacity of one and a half billion people, not seven. A few minutes ago, you mentioned the sixth great extinction, described by Dr. Richard Leakey, one of the world's most famous anthropologists. 
He says it's the next annihilation of a vast number of species. It's happening now, and we, the human race, are the cause. Leakey, Leakey Jr., who was the first to coin that term, one of the people in our film, Tom Lovejoy, talks, coined the term biodiversity. There have been five great extinctions since life began on Earth, and in one of them, the blue-green algae created so much oxygen that they poisoned their atmosphere and could only survive underground. Uh, I think another one of them was the dinosaurs. But the way people tell it, this is the first one where a species has deliberately poisoned and destroyed its habitat, the planet. This is the first one that's being done consciously. There is an estimate that comes from Stanford. It's that humans are using 47% of the terrestrial activity coming from the sun so that all of the plants and all the animals and so on, one species is essentially taking half of the available you know, food and energy and everything else for the planet. We are literally crowding out other species. Wherever man has gone, we have destroyed other species. And now it's not hunting so much as it's uh, loss of habitat. We're just crowding out everybody else. Well, Mark Kitchell, producer and director of A Fierce Green Fire, I want to ask you why you think that deliberate action is occurring among our species. But before you answer... This is Radio Curious. Our guest is Mark Kitchell. He's the producer and director of a movie, uh, Fear Screen Fire, about to be released. The Mendocino Film Festival will present the world premiere of A Fear Screen Fire the weekend of November 9, 10, and 11 in Fort Bragg, Mendocino, and Point Arena. Stay tuned for details. You can also learn about it by going to fearscreenfire.com. I'm Radio Curious host and producer, Barry Vogel. Mark, why do you think our species is doing this, which is destructive at so many levels? This is typical of conversations about environmental issues, where we go into the great crises and the great injustices and the, you know, the things that we're doing to destroy this planet. And in fact, the film is sort of the opposite of that because it's really built around the movement. It's built around people who go out and fight to change things. And most of the stories in the film are actually about successes. It's about stopping dams in the Grand Canyon and stopping the pollution of Love Canal and getting those people out of there. And it's about saving the whales and saving the Amazon. It's not the kind of dire conversations that we tend to have about the environment when we talk about it. Mark, now that the film is released, what are your goals? What do you hope to accomplish? Well, I'm hoping in the broadest sense that we can get people to a bigger understanding of the environmental movement and its place in sort of the flow and progress of civilization in this planet. I think there's a big task before us that is finding a way to live in sustainable balance with nature on which we depend for survival. We have to 
transform our civilization, and to a certain extent we have to transform ourselves, certainly the way we think about uh, living with nature. And I think we're at the beginning of that, and I think the environmental movement is probably halfway run its course. I think it's gotten to the big fundamental questions, and it's finding it very hard to address in straight-ahead movement ways. And, you know, I, I think we're in for a century when we reap the consequences of our, you know, environmental sins. And uh, we're going to be driven by that to change our way of living, to change our civilization. And I think it's happening now. And I want the generations to come to get a sense of this larger flow of history and where we are. I'm I'm just hoping for that bigger historical understanding. Do you have um, a vision of what the changes would look like? Oh, in part, yes. You know, we're living out some of them already. I think a lot of people have been living that newer vision. It's hard to see it all. I'm flabbergasted that it's photovoltaic, solar power. It started 40, 50 years ago, and and here we are still trying to bring it about. And it was a lot of off-the-gridders who were the only people who really stuck with it and, and, and followed that solar energy. It's disappointing, but on the other hand, I go out in the Central Valley now and I see big photovoltaic installations coming in at last. And I know that there's more coming. And, you know, it feels like... A long time coming, but I get a sense that it is at last, and we're beginning to see it. So tell us about the plans you have for screening the Fear Screen Fire. Well, the Mendocino Film Festival um, is putting on four shows the weekend of November 9th through 11th. It's going to be a Friday evening show at the high school in the Matheson Auditorium in Mendocino, and then it's going to be a Saturday morning show in Fort Bragg, and then another evening show Saturday back at Matheson Auditorium in Mendocino. And then Sunday at 3 o'clock, there's going to be a show in Point Arena. It's very exciting. I feel like we're coming to the heartland. You know, the people who really believe in this stuff, and it'll be very interesting to see what they think of it. And, you know, a tough audience, a good audience. I'm really looking forward to the feedback. This, by the way, is the world premiere of the final, final version of the film. I'm hoping to take the film out and start a lot of conversations. I'm hoping it's not just going to see a film. I'm hoping that there's a lot of talking around the film. You know, we built it in five parts of 20 minutes so that People could show a piece of it in a classroom or in an activist group, and then they could have a conversation about it. We premiered the film at Sundance in January, but since that time, we've gone back in and worked it some more and taken about 15 minutes out of the film. We've added five celebrity narrators. We've reworked the opening and the closing of the film. We've tightened it up in a lot of ways, done a lot of archival work, mastering and licensing, so it looks gorgeous. And uh, not even you, Barry, have seen it in all its beautiful majesty. Uh, and What do you envision for uh, screening? 
Well, we've got a couple of distributors in First Run Features, who I've worked with on Berkeley in the 60s. They're going to do a national theatrical release of about 100 play dates that will be February through May of next year. And Bullfrog Films, which is the venerable distributor of environmental films, is already doing educational and non-theatrical screenings. Our New York premiere is going to be the Margaret Mead Film Festival, um, and we're going back to the Environmental Film Festival in Washington, D.C. We had a standing room-only crowd that just gave us a standing ovation last March, and, you know, I think we're going to be doing a combination of theatrical, non-theatrical, educational, and really important to us is working with environmental groups and community activists. We really want to get out there and work with communities. You know, we're working with the North Coast Environment Center in Arcata to put on a benefit there. and All the small communities and, and really reach out and reach out to schools. We're going to all the college programs. I hear that there's 3,000 uh, colleges that have some sort of programs in green and sustainability, and I want to get to all of them. And You know, I take these films the commitment to distributing them seriously. So I'm just going to work my butt off getting this film out and seen as widely as I can. I feel like I owe it to the movement. Well, I hope that you're successful. And Mark Kitchell, I want to ask you uh, some questions about you. And the first is about a eureka or an aha moment that has changed your life. Well, I thought about that moment when we began this project. You know, I'd come off of Berkeley in the 60s thinking I'd do a project on garbage and then put it aside, and I'd work on a few things, a few things for hire. I was trying to do a history of the great revolutions of the world, and I was utterly frustrated. And my wife said, well, why don't you do the history of the environmental movement? And that was an aha you know, if I go back to the 60s when I was a kid growing up in San Francisco and on top of Tamil Pius taking acid and even not on acid, I had some real aha moments about how everything is related, you know, John Muir's basic insight about ecology and nature. Uh, but the thing I thought of, Barry, was I thought of all the, the story that gives this film its name. And it's not my story, it's Aldo Leopold's story. But talk about an aha. Where the name of Fierce Green Fire comes from is Aldo Leopold in 1917 or 13 or something like that was a young ranger working in the new national forests of the Southwest. And his job was to kill predators. And so they saw a wolf and he whipped out his rifle and shot her dead, and uh, went running down the hill to see what had become of all the cubs, and he looked in her eyes, and he saw a fierce green fire. And that was his moment of awakening. That was when he began to understand that the wolf knew more than he did about the order and the relationship of things and the ecology, and that was his awakening, and he became one of the great pioneering ecologists. That's a bigger aha than I've ever had. And can you tell us what you would like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Well, I'm thinking about a few films. I'm always 
thinking that I'm getting too old for this and can't stand to spend another 10 years making another project. And then the documentary ghetto is just too damn poor and there's too many kids coming up and it's become too cheap and easy. But inevitably, I get to thinking about what I'd like to do next. And I've got a few projects. And one of them is to do something on hackers. I was actually surprised to go back and find that I had written three proposals about hackers and the computer revolution. And this one, you know, the stakes of the debate might be about an open Internet versus closing it down. And, you know, hackers, there's two meanings to the word. There's the pioneers who did these amazing hacks and were respected as, you know, great people. If you wanted to be respected, you had to do an amazing hack. And now there are the dark side hackers who, you know, just read this week about uh, the Iranian hackers who broke into Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company, and erased all the memories. Uh, I think that could be an interesting story that relates a lot to today. There is another film that I'm just thinking about doing, Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine. I think that's a wonderful set of ideas, and I'd love to explore it on film. Those are great, important stories. Those are big ideas. Is there more? There's one other. I probably ought to do some sort of update or follow-on or expansion of this film. Uh, you know, there are stories within it that would be great to tell. In particular, what we wanted to do was something about the present and the future of the environmental movement. And so we'll look around and see if we can build on this film and um, get funding to do anything more. How old are you? Could you share that with us? I turned 60 this year. And finally, uh, Mark Kitchell, uh, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Or perhaps a film other than A Fierce Green Fire? (laughs) Well, you know, there's another film called Green Fire, uh, which is about Aldo Leopold. And I think it's a pretty good film. And uh, it's you know, you can get it from the Aldo Leopold Foundation. It's made by some colleagues, including Steve Most. Who's been a guest on Radio Curious. Yes. Books, you know, I think The Shock Doctrine is a brilliant piece of work. I I recommend Naomi Klein very highly. Well, Mark Kitchell, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Oh, thank you so much, Barry. It's been a great pleasure. And I hope to see all of you in Mendocino at the show. Mark Kitchell is the producer and director of the film A Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet. The world premiere of this film will be held on November 9, 10, and 11 in Fort Bragg, Mendocino, and Point Arena. You may learn more at mendocinofilmfestival.org and afearscreenfire.com. The film Mark Kitchell recommends is Green Fire, Aldo Leopold and the Land Ethic of Our Time. The book he recommends is The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism by Naomi Klein. This program was recorded on October 26, 2012. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, 
radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.